0: Hi, this is Materially Speaking, where artists tell their stories through the materials they choose. In this series, we're in a community in northern Italy where artists have been carving marble since Michelangelo first came here 500 years ago to source marble from the local quarries. Artists come not only to benefit from the range of marble available here, but also to work with the exceptionally skilled artisans. With 30 miles north of Pisa, sandwiched between sea and pine forests on one side, and olive groves rising up the hillsides into the Apuan Alps on the other, we're near a town called Pietrasanta, nicknamed Little Athens because of its tradition for carving marble. Today I'm in Studio Sem, founded by master marble carver Sem Gellardini in the 1950s. In 1963, a papal edict... Vatican II pretty much put a stop to the carving of ecclesiastical work that sustained the artisans of this area. Sem was one of a few people to have the foresight to invite international artists to come to realise their work here with the help of skilled artisans. Sculptors such as Henry Moore, Georges henri Adam, Juan Miro, and later on César and Helene Blumenfeld all came to realise their work at his studio. This was a huge turning point for the type of carving done in this area. Sem's reputation for his passionate support for his artists is continued today by the current studio head, Kira McMartin, and Sem's son, Pierangelo, who lead a tight team of artisans. I'm sitting in the peach orchard behind the studio, overlooking a space where artists can polish their work by hand. Nearby, marble is stored for new projects, and in the background you can hear the sounds of the busy studio. Today I'm talking to Ailish O'Connell, an Irish artist who works in many materials, from Corten and mirror-polished stainless steel to bronze and epoxy resin. She is here because of a particular commission that she wants to create in
1: marble. I'm Ailish O'Connell. I work in Cork in the south of Ireland. I was born in the north of Ireland in Derry, in the 50s and then we moved to the south when I was about 10 and I went to a school of art locally in Cork and then I went to our college in Boston then I got um, a fellowship and in the British School at Rome and I stayed in education as long as I could because I knew how difficult it would be to survive as an artist so it was like a sheltered work- workshop. And what sort of art were you doing? Were you doing uh painting drawing no well, in Ireland, at that point in time in the seventies there was only one course, and it was to how to, it was to be a, an art teacher and uh, so in fact, you had to learn everything. It was a very antiquated system, a bit like it was here in Italy. immediately, I knew I just wanted to always be an artist and um but the reality is you, you have to train for something, so I had to train to be a teacher. I did get all my exams because they were practical, which was brilliant, got all my exams in about the first two years, and then I was free to mess around and they were changing the course at that point. They'd brought in some teachers from England to modernise the system. So we were open to all these influences like steel, Anthony Carroll, like one of our teachers had worked for Brian Neal in London. So there was a connection there already with St Martin's and all that. So it was steel. My first attraction really was steel. Learning to weld was a thrill. What did you do in steel? What were your first sort of pieces? Um, Well, first of all, you have to learn to weld the steel and how to use it. So there's a skill in that. And because it was art college, uh, we were sent to a technical school where they train you to weld like underwater and, you know, crazy stuff like that. Or, you know, they test, x-ray the welds and all that. So it was really high tech, but it was more than what I needed. But it was actually great in terms of learning the skill. So I was very good at the technical side of it. And then I was just like... Like David Smith in America and Anthony Caro, I used scrap, scrap steel. But then later I went to school, I went to um, college in America, and then I was exposed to like fibreglass and all different materials, and I discovered Nagoshi, people like that, and Richard Serra, of course. But then I love, I just love experimenting as a natural thing. I'm a real messer, you know, I like to see what a material can do and play with it. I didn't want to get pinned down, so I, I branched out from stone, from steel to other materials, bronze and um, resins, and all kinds of stuff. Really. So what took you to Boston? Well, you see, in Ireland there was this great thing of if you're a student, you could get a visa called a J-1 visa, and you went every summer to the States, and everybody did this, and you got a gra- you got some money as well to go. So. I just went to New York when I was 18 and then I went to Boston and then I went to the Midwest. So every single summer I went abroad and kind of saw as much art as possible, got crappy old jobs. But it was a brilliant experience, you know, it was kind of amazing. Um, So I was very drawn to American artists and just the scale of art, you know, Richard Serra, I mean, the scale of that. So scale has really always been my thing. I'm obsessed with scale. Even from when I was very young. Like I make a small thing and I think, God, if it could be as big as the landscaper, you know, because I like to be outside myself. I mean, galleries to me are rooms, you know, they're just internal spaces. So I like to be outside in the air and the sculpture has to exist like every other thing. It has to just have some sort of relevance to the place and people have to look after it as well. And it's, everybody can see it. It's not like a gallery.
0: And how um, important is it for you to know where it's going to be
1: placed as as you make it? It's it's really weird, that question, actually, because, like, in the past, I have sold pieces to, you know, people, large companies and things, and if you're selling through a dealer, they don't want you to know where it goes, which I find absolutely incredible. They'll do everything to hide where it's going because I think the context of where you put a sculpture is so important. That's why I'm drawn to putting a thing outside because I know it's going to be there forever you know and hopefully it's going to be maintained. now that's another huge issue people do not maintain sculpture they think it's it it cleans itself well actually it doesn't it's like every other material in the world so you have to maintain it it's my latest bugbear maintenance
0: it's so tell me more about maintenance and how one does it and how you get people to
1: well, I, when I worked in London, I worked in London for 17 years and I, I worked with good public art agencies and they know about this kind of thing. And so I would write in maintenance contracts into my into the commission and they would too. And everybody would sign it, and it would be fine. And the next thing is you'd pass your sculpture and it would be absolutely filthy, like say something in London where the traffic is dreadful you know and I'd go into the building and I'd say my piece hasn't been maintained da 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 and I I would say it was commissioned by the contemporary arts society and they'd go well it's owned now by some German company the building's been sold you know so it's all that sort of stuff you know so like I can't go around every piece and clean it myself. How about other materials that you've worked with? Bronze, bronze is the biggest issue because well the patinas are very good if they're kept properly you know Henry Moore's in London they're washed every six weeks and cleaned every, you know. And I have a piece in Newcastle which is uh, mirror polished stainless steel and they clean it every two weeks. One of the things in commissions is maintenance free material. And I have to immediately say no such thing. Sorry, guys, you know, actually the most maintenance free is mirror polished stainless steel because you still see the, you know, it's like it just gets dirty. It's, you know, it's not. Whereas a patina, say, if a bird poos in a patina, it starts to eat into the bronze it etches it and it goes lime green you know so
0: does that to my yeah. car
1: yeah and yeah I mean if you think of it a car you leave your car unwashed even for six months it's hideous it's the same as sculpture but why don't people get that and think about they're gonna have to if they if they own it they have to be responsible and and clean it so that's a, I'm really particular about that
0: another question that I um has come up a couple of times is um both functionality and artistically of bases. So like you know, is it high enough that kids can't climb on it? Oh that's a huge issue. So Uh, what's what's your take on bases? Okay,
1: I spent my entire life resisting the plinth. The plinth is to me it separated a person from the, from the piece of sculpture. It was like, I'm up in a plinth, I'm really different, you know? So all my life I've liked things lying down the ground, but actually it's not very practical. Things have to be pinned to the ground. But say a big piece, I like it to look like it just grew out of the ground. Or it, it's just lying there. But in, a, in reality, you've got to pin it. And, but sometimes I just pin two points and then it looks like it's kind of floating. And I make the plinth myself, it becomes part of the piece, so it's just like the ground. When they're above human height, some, they're, they're saying something completely different, you know, like monumental sculpture. It's on a very high plinth, ber- bigger than a person because it's all about power. I feel it's about, if you go into churches, it's like everything's elevated because like, we're bigger and better than you, you know. it's this. But now I'm thinking, now I think the plinth is actually very important, really. But then the thing about kids, you kind of mentioned that. I did. Yeah. Well, they're trouble, actually. (laughs) They're trouble. And, like, they do inhibit you in the public realm, you know, if a kid can climb on something or... One of my first commissions in Ireland is in a place called Kinsale. And I did a huge piece in court in steel. I was really young at the time. And there were these huge slopes of steel. They were rolled steel and they were just kind of rolling into the ground. And I thought they were fabulous. You could just kind of slightly run up it and run, you know, you'd fall down a little bit. But it was the time of BMX bikes. So the kids just loved these things. This is like the early 80s. So they got their BMX bikes and they went up and down, you know, kind of. And I thought the tire tracks were beautiful. I thought they were like drawings. This was like the public drawing of my piece. Layers of rubber on the court and were absolutely gorgeous. But that town became obsessed with the kids who were going to kill themselves. Now, children don't naturally kill themselves. So it became a huge thing. And then they decided they didn't like Corten and it had to be painted and it was just, it was a disaster because at the time in Ireland, I didn't even know this, art had no copyright. Would you believe that? So what did that mean? They could it change meant, it? it? It meant actually that the, ar- the county architect who had given me full permission to make the piece, he decided it was dangerous. And he decided that the rust was not very nice. <laughs> he, and he, what he did was at the end of the slopes he put in ponds, ponds of water. I was, I just like, I just cried. It was just awful. So he put in three ponds, not just one but three, in a tiny area. He painted it and he had water flowing down the slopes to stop the children going up it. And the, wa- of course, the ponds just filled with rubbish. You know, they looked ridiculous. They filled, It was he changed the colour. You know, and this was okay, because there was no copyright. That's and I was going to take it to the courts, and then I realised, oh, my God, I don't even... They never ratified the Berne Convention in Ireland until very late.
0: So it's changed now, has it?
1: So so it's changed now, yeah, it's changed now, yeah. But, I mean, there was nothing I could do, absolutely nothing. Gosh, that's frustrating. I was desperate, and I got terrible abuse from the public, really bad. So that was when I went to, I went to London then. Well, let's talk about
0: materials then. So we're in... Um, Sem Studios mm-hmm. and
1: near the Carrara Marble Fields Yeah. so what brought you here and when? About 10 years ago Almuth Tebenoff who works here a lot she told me about this place she said you'd absolutely love it it would be amazing but at the time I was in London and I was paying a fortune for my studio and I could never get away you know and then I got this commission recently in Dublin and it was inside a building it was a very a, a really interesting space it was an atrium and it's funny now because buildings used to be all sort of white and light now they're going for, they had living walls I think just walls with just plants growing all over them um, and they had a wooden floor and it's because it's kind of surrounded by dark wood and the living walls I just felt it needed something white and immediately I thought, stone, this has to be white stone like it'll just absorb all the light from the atrium and I came up with an idea and I started thinking about stone And usually, I'm just thinking freely with metal, with bronze, I can make it ever I want. And so I had to think really differently about gravity and weight, which I thought was very interesting, you know. Um, And even now, having come here, I can think another bit bit more differently because I'm seeing how they use the stone and I feel I'm learning so much. Because I thought stone could do less than it can do.
0: So, um, you said then that
1: marble can do a lot more than you thought. Yeah. Can you expand on that? God, how would I explain this now? Okay, for instance, I saw these Elena Bloomfield pieces that were going to Sweden, and I just, they kind of blew my mind, um, because she's got these massive pieces of stone, and they're kind of stretching out over your head, like three, two metres above you. And you're just going, oh my God, and this is carved out of stone. These hollow shapes, because I love hollow shapes. Like, I make a lot of kind of cave-like things. But she's got them coming out, like, pinched out. I mean, I just think they're incredible how how the stone can do that. And then... Um, Pierangelo in there is carving one of her smaller pieces and I'm looking at the model and like how does he get into that little hollow and it's not just, it's like a little animal's tunnel it's going way down and around and you can see all this light and shade and it's like how does he get in there to do that with a power tool, you know but they make their own power tools I mean they make their own little chisels here, yeah. here they would make their own little chisels to get into really incredible spaces that you couldn't even imagine getting a finger into so, like, that's... I'm just so excited about that now. I'm just going, oh, my God, you know. So Fantastic. So
0: um, you started your work two months ago? Tell me how you do. How do you start from oh a piece? God. So you took well, the commission... You decide- I go into
1: the building and I see... I can see the piece in my head, right? Kind of, kind of. I have the concept and I have this, the idea... And then I'd come home and I make all these models, and then I'd go back to the building and I think, "Oh, I don't know about that." And then I start changing and chopping, and then I go through permutations and combinations of every different idea, and I I'd drive myself bonkers. I actually drive myself bonkers. And then I end up going back to the thing maybe that I first thought of. It's never easy. It's never easy. What well, do you make your models of? I make the models out of usually kind of jesmonite, which is a aplat. it's a re- a bioresin. It's kind of like plaster, but, It's more versatile. You can make it like clay or you can make it runny. You can paint it. Or wax, sometimes I use wax. So you make your model.
0: Yeah. And then you come here. Um, How about choosing the stone?
1: Yeah, I went out with Kira, and we picked the stone, the whitest marble we could find. Where did you go? We went to this big place where the guy had a huge crane and he had diamond ropes and things so they you know these diamond ropes and they cut into the block to see if it's okay and there was a little tiny air bubble but it was up we could manage to get the sculpture in you can, you could that would be the excess stuff i mean it's a 10 ton block and they're carving away eight tons and it'll be two tons in weight well the whole thing because it's in a building so it has to come in under a certain weight because steel has this resilience i mean this is what's brilliant about steel you can draw a line in steel and it would just stand up you know that's the story. So it's like magic. It's like a magic material. So with the stone, it's more you have to consider things like gravity. <laughs> and have you
0: had a look at um, a number of different marbles just because you're here?
1: Yeah, oh, God, I'm out all the time looking at stones. I mean, Kira is a great collection of stone out in the field. And does it inspire you for other work? Oh, gosh, I'm going around taking pictures of all the stone I want to use. Like, she says I'm like a kid in a candy store, and it's true. So what's your take on the area? I think the area is, it's like heaven on earth, really. And just like the age of the place and just the feeling that people love the stone. The stone is everywhere. It's in every house. My, the sink in the house I'm staying in is made of stone. And it's just, its it's just everywhere I go, there's something really nice to look at, something really beautiful. But it's it's a very special place and like all the guys in there, they all had fathers working in stone and it just goes back generations and it, it's kind of in their blood, you know? So I think we could learn an awful lot. What about churches? Do you like going around churches? Yeah. Oh, the church is everything, isn't it? Like, like it's amazing. They had so much money and like in, in Luca where everybody was trying to build a tower bigger than the other place, I just thought, humanity doesn't change. Like, look at Trump Tower, you know? Like it's always been the same, why is it men are obsessed with large tall towers? Like the church, you can see the power of the church. Like in Ireland we felt it our entire lives, you know, the impression of the church. In Ireland it was about repression, but here the church seemed more celebratory. It was about celebrating, you know, whereas in Ireland it was like about dehumanising you. You know, it was about making you feel inferior. Uh, and it's really strange the girl whose house I'm staying in I met her by accident and she said uh, oh you're from Ireland she said my grandfather worked on the churches in Ireland and he loved Ireland like a lot of the, the altars and things were made by Italians and they came over to Ireland and, and built them I was just reading a piece that um, I guess was on
0: your website um, and I just wondered whether we might go back and talk about um, your choices of materials because it's obviously a very important part of yeah. your
1: work and not everybody works that way. and yeah. well I suppose in Ireland stone is really important like like I did my thesis on Newgrange, you know that place they didn't really carve the stones, they roughly shaped them a bit like Stonehenge or something but they, they carved the surface and they carved spirals and that's a really big deal, you know they're thousands of years old so I love archaeology, they created this, this, there's a place, it's just full of these passage graves and tombs and they made the domes over them. But this one Newgrange, it's, you go down into the passage and it's a cruciform shape, it's before Christianity. And in the middle of it there's kind of a rough stone bowl and, and just at the entrance there's a little slit made with just two stones. And on the shortest day of the year, the 21st of September, the sun at sunrise goes right through that slit and shines into the centre of this bowl. That's incredible. That's earth art, you know, like, that was, you know, 3000 BC. And I just thought, like, that's always fascinated me. Because to to me, that sculpture and these things are all over Ireland. And, you know, we have such reverence for these things. Like, it's incredible. I mean, I, I think I love... What I love is I love learning about how to use materials. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to become totally brilliant at working with them, which a lot of artists just perfect one material. But I, I just get... I have to find out more and more about different things, and I like to learn... I'm learning all the time about new things. It's a challenge, you know. keeps me interested. So, stone. What else can I say, really? It's... I'm kind of obsessed with materials, and I do know a lot about materials, so... What's your favourite? it's like asking a person what's your favourite child.
0: So thanks to Ailish O'Connell. You can see her work on her website at ailishoconnell.com and follow her on Instagram, ailishoconnell underscore sculptor. For photographs of all the work discussed in this series, follow our Instagram, or visit our website materiallyspeaking.com and join our mailing list to hear about upcoming shows.